Section six of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. William Foster, Part two. Catherine Sirrett's mother was an intensely, even a morbidly religious woman. Her father was an atheist and an aesthete. Yet her parents were fond of each other at first, and made common cause in spoiling their only child. Sometimes the mother would whisper in the little girl's ear that she must pray for her poor father, who was blind to the true light and deaf to the beautiful voice. Sometimes the father would tell her that if she would worship, she must worship genius, the poet, the painter, the musician, that if she would pray, she must pray to nature, the sea, the sunset, and the springtime. But as a rule, these two loving antagonists thought it was enough for their baby, their treasure, to develop quietly, steadily, in an atmosphere of adoration, in which arose no mist of theories, no war of words. Till she was ten years old, Catherine was untroubled. At that age, a parental contest began to rage, at first furtively, about her. With the years her mother's morbidity waxed, her father's restraint waned. The one became more intensely and frantically devout, the other more frankly pagan. And now, as the child grew, and her mind and heart stood up to meet life and girlhood, each of her parents began to feel towards her the desire of soul possession. She had been brought up a Christian, the father had permitted that. So long as she was an ignorant infant, he had felt no anxiety to attach her to his theories. But when he saw the intelligence growing in her eyes, the dawn of her soul deepening, there stirred within him a strong desire that she should face existence as he faced it, free from trammels of superstition. The mother, with the quick intuition of woman, soon understood his unexpressed feeling, and thrilled with religious fear. Although, or indeed because, she loved her husband so much, she was tortured by his lack of faith. And now she was alarmed at the thought of the effect his influence might have upon Catherine, she was roused to an intense activity of the soul. She said nothing to her husband of her fear and horror. He said nothing to her of his secret determination that his only child should grow up in his own faithless faith. But a silent and determined battle began to rage between them for the possession of Catherine's soul. And at last this battle turned the former love of the parents into a sort of uneasy hatred, the child did not fully comprehend what was going on around her, but she dimly felt it, and it influenced her whole nature. Her mother, who was given over to religious forms, who was ritualistic and sentimental as well as really devout and fervent, at first gained the ascendancy over Catherine. Holy but narrow-minded, she compressed the girl's naturally expansive temperament and taught her something of the hideous and brooding melancholy of the bigot and the fanatic. Then the father, quick-sighted and roused to an almost angry activity by his appreciation of Catherine's danger, threw himself into the combat, and endeavoured to imbue the girl with his own comprehension of life's meaning, exaggerating all his theories, in the endeavour to make them seem sufficiently vital and impressive. Catherine lived in the centre of this battle, which became continually more fierce, until she was eighteen. Then she fell in love with Mark Sirrett, married him, and left her parents alone with their mutual hostility, now complicated by a sort of paralysis of surprise and sense of mutual failure. 
they had forgotten that their child's future might hold a lover, a husband. Now they found themselves in the rather absurd position of enemies who have quarrelled over a shadow which suddenly vanishes away. They had lost their love for each other, they had lost Catherine. But her soul, though it was given to Mark Sirrett, had not lost their impress. Both the Puritanism of her mother and the paganism of her father were destined to play their parts in the guidance of her strange and terrible destiny. Mark Sirrett, when he married Catherine, was twenty-five, dark, handsome, warm-hearted, and rich. It seemed that he had an exceptionally sweet and attractive nature. He had been an affectionate son, a kind brother in his home, a generous comrade at school and college. Everybody had a good word for him, his family, his tutors, his friends, his servants. Like most young and ardent men, he had had some follies. At least they were never mean or ungenerous. He entered upon married life with an unusually good record. Those who knew him casually, even many who knew him well, considered that he was easily read, that he was transparently frank, that, though highly intelligent, he was not particularly subtle, and that no still waters ran deep in Mark's spirit. All these people were utterly wrong. Mark had a very curious side to his nature, which remained almost unsuspected until after his marriage with Catherine, but which eventually was to make a name very well known to the world. He was, although apparently so open, in reality full of reserve. He was full of ambition, and he had an exceptionally peculiar and exceptionally riotous imagination, and this imagination he was quite determined to express in an art, the art of literature. But his reserve kept him inactive until he had left Oxford when he went to live in London, where eventually he met Catherine. His reserve and his artistic hesitation to work until he felt able to do good work held Mark's imagination in check as a dam holds water in check. He sometimes wrote, but nobody knew that he wrote except one friend, Frederick Berend, and Berend could be a silent man. Even to Catherine, when he fell in love with her and wooed her, Mark did not reveal his desire for fame or his intention to win it. The girl loved her lover for what he was, but not for all he was. Of the still water that ran deep she as yet knew nothing. She thought her husband, who was rich, who appeared gay, who had lived so far as it seemed idly enough, would continue to live with her as he had apparently lived without her, brightly, honestly, a little thoughtlessly, a little vainly. She had no sort of suspicion that she had married that very curious phenomenon, a born artist. Had her mother suspected it, she would have been shocked. Had her father dreamed it, he would have been delighted. And Catherine herself? Well, she was still a child at this time. She and Mark went to Spain for their honeymoon, and lived in a tiny white villa at Grenada. It stood on the edge of the hill whose crown is the exquisite and dreamlike Alhambra. Its long and narrow garden ran along the hillside, a slope of roses and of orange flowers, of thick, hot grass, and of tangled green shrubs. The garden wall was white and uneven, and almost hidden by the wild pink flowers. Beneath was spread the plain in which lies the city, bounded by the mountains over which each evening the sun sets, and every day the drowsy air hummed in answer to the huge and drowsy voice of the wonderful cathedral bell, 
which struck the hours and filled this lovely world with almost terrible vibrations of romance in the thick woods that steal to the feet of the ethereal palace the murmur of the streams was ever heard and the white snows of the sierra nevada stared over the yellow and russet plain and were touched with a blue blush as the night came on catherine although she loved her parents and had never fully realized the enmity grown up between them felt a strange happiness that was more than the happiness of newborn passion in her emancipation she was by nature exquisitely sensitive and she had often been vaguely troubled by the contest between her parents their fighting instincts had sometimes set her face to face with a sort of shadowed valley in whose blackness she faintly heard the far-off clash of weapons now she was caught away from this subtle tumult and as she looked into her husband's vivacious dark eyes she felt that a little weight which had lain long on her heart was lifted from it she had thought herself happy before now she knew herself utterly happy life seemed to have no dark background even love itself was not spoiled by a too great wonder of seriousness they loved in sunshine and were gay like grasshoppers in the grass that the sun has filled with a still rapture of warmth not till two days before their departure for england was this chirping grasshopper mood disturbed or dispelled at one end of the long and narrow garden there was a little crude pavilion open to the air on three sides the domed roof was supported on painted wooden pillars up which red and white roses audaciously climbed rugs covered the floor a wooden railing ran along the front facing the steep hillside the furniture was simple and homely a few low basket chairs and an oval table in this pavilion the newly married pair took tea nearly every afternoon after their expeditions in the neighbourhood or their strolls through the sunny moorish courts after tea they sat on and watched the sunset and fancied they could see the birds that flew away over the city towards the distant mountains dropped down to their nests in seville ere the darkness came this last evening but one was intensely hot the town at their feet seemed drowned in a dust of gold cries softened and made utterly musical rose up to them from this golden world beyond which the sky reddened as the sun sank lower sometimes they heard the jingling bells of mules and horses in the hidden streets they saw the pigeons circling above the housetops and doll-like figures moving whimsically in gardens that seemed as small as pocket-handkerchiefs thin laughter of playing children stole to them and then the huge and veiled voice of the cathedral bell told the hour like time become articulate a voice may have an immense influence over a sensitive nature this bell of the cathedral of grenada has one of the most marvellous voices in the world deep with a depth of old and vanished ages heavy with the burden of all the long dead years and this evening it seemed suddenly to strike away a veil from catherine's husband she was leaning her arms on the painted railing and searching the toy city with her happy eyes mark standing behind her was solicitously winding a shawl round her to protect her from the chill that falls from the sierra nevada with the dropping downward of the sun as the bell tolled catherine felt that mark's hands slipped from her shoulders she glanced round and up at him he was standing rigid his eyes were widely opened 
His lips were parted. All the gaiety that usually danced in his face had disappeared. He looked like an entranced man. Mark! Catherine exclaimed. Mark! Why, how strange you look! Do I? he said, staring out over the wide plain below. The voice of the bell died reluctantly on the air, but some huge and vague echo of its heavy romance seemed to sway like a wave across the little houses to the sunset and faint towards Seville. Yes, you look sad and stern. I've never seen your face like this till now. He made no answer. Are you sad because we are going so soon? she asked. But then why should we go? We are perfectly happy here. There is nothing to call us away. Kitty, does not that bell give you the lie? he answered. The bell of the cathedral? she asked, wondering. Yes, just now when I listened to it, I seemed to hear it whispering of the mysterious things of life, of the hidden currents in the great river, of the sorrows, of the terrors, of the crimes. Mark, said Catherine in amazement. Nothing to call us away from our idle happiness here, he continued. Do you say nothing? Why, no, for we are free. We have no ties. We have no profession, Mark. You have no art even to call you back to England. Dear father, how he worships the arts. And you, Kitty, you? Mark spoke with a curious pressure of excitement. He has taught me to love them, too. How much, Kitty? As he loved them, more than anything else on earth? She had never heard him speak at all like this. She answered, Oh, no, for my mother, she paused, my mother has made me understand that there is something greater than any art, more important, more beautiful. What can that be? Oh, Mark, religion! He leaned over the railing at her side, and the white and red roses that embraced the pillar shook against his thick dark hair in the infant breeze of evening. But there are many religions, he said. A man's art may be his religion. A troubled look came into her eyes and made them like her mother's. Oh, no, Mark. Yes, Kitty, he said with growing earnestness, putting aside his reserve for the first time with her. Indeed it may. You mean when he uses it to do good? He shook his head. The roses shivered. The true artist never thinks of that. To have a definite moral purpose is destructive. The city at their feet was sinking into shadow now, and the air grew cold, filled with the snowy breath of the Sierra. When we get back to England, I will teach you the right way to follow an art, to worship it, the way that will be mine. Yours, Mark, but I don't understand. No, he said, you don't understand all of me yet, Kitty. Do you want to? Yes, she said. There was a sound of fear in her voice. Mark sat down beside her and put his arm around her. Kitty, he began, I'm only on the threshold of my life, of my real life, my life with you and with my work. You are going to work? she exclaimed. Yes, that bell just now seemed to strike the hour of commencement, to tell me it was time for me to begin. I should like, some day, far in the future, Kitty, to hear it strike that other hour, the hour when I must finish, when the little bit of work that I can do in the world is done. I shan't be afraid of that hour any more than I'm afraid of this one. Perhaps when you and I are old, 
we shall come here again and listen to that bell once more the same when we are changed he pointed towards the cathedral which was still touched by the sun catherine leaned against his shoulder she said nothing and did not move everything in life has its appointed recorder he continued they are a big band the band of the recorders who strive accurately to write down life as it is well kitty i am going to be one of that band you are going to be a writer mark yes then you will record the beauty the joy the purity the goodness of life his usual bright face had become sombre and thoughtful it looked strangely dark and saturnine in the twilight i shall record what i see most clearly and what is that not the things on the surface but the things beneath the surface of life and then he told catherine more fully of his ambition and gave her a glimpse of the hidden side of his duplex nature she gazed up at him in the gathering twilight and it seemed to her that she was looking at a stranger the climbing roses still shook against mark in the wind while he talked his voice grew almost fierce and his dark eyes shone like the eyes of a fanatic when he ceased to speak catherine's lips were pursed together like her mother's when she listened to the pagan rhapsodies of mr ardock two days later the sirets left grenada for england end of section six